Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming to this discussion about church and state. And arguably, this discussion's been going on for a few thousand years. I think you could argue Jesus chimed in on this one when he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Martin Luther had a few things to say about it during the Reformation, as did many of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson talked about the wall of separation between church and state when he was reinforcing the idea that America wouldn't have the same state church like the Church of England. And in a more recent example, on the outer reaches of this debate about church and state, the Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, famous for his miracle election victory in 2019, weighed into this one, promising to bring protections to religious communities from overzealous secular folks and the ongoing march of liberal progressives. Now that seemed to backfire because it drew attention to the political overreach by churches on the lives of gay and trans students. And ultimately, our parliament wasn't able to define the lines of religious freedom because they couldn't agree on redefining the lines of protection for those who wish to live free from condemnation by the faithful. It was another example of how complex this relationship between church and state really is. So, today, do we really have separation between church and state here in Australia? Or is it more of a cohabitation? Is it too cosy? Or is it fair that religious people, who still represent 70% of Australians, at least according to the census, have a say in our civic life? So let's see what insightful contributions uh, we can make to this age-old debate today. Um, you'll hear from my two panellists, but you will also be um, welcome to get up and ask questions later on in this discussion. Um, we have two microphones, so once we get to your questions, um, please come down and line up to um, say whatever you'd like to say, and it will be recorded um, as part of a, a podcast of this session. Uh, my name is Tom Tilley. Uh, I'm a journalist, and I've just written a book called Speaking in Tongues, which came out a few weeks ago. Uh, and if you do manage to pick it up at some point, you'll see that I've lived almost exactly half my life inside a hardcore Pentecostal church and half of it outside. So that's the perspective I'm bringing. Uh, to my right, I have Elle Baxter, who's a journalist. Was at one stage, she just told me, a hardcore atheist, but she's rethought that a little bit. And she's written a very compelling book about the global Pentecostal movement called Beyond Belief. She travels all around the world on some incredibly fascinating adventures. Um, she's a journalist who splits her time between Australia, America and the UK, writing for The Guardian and the ABC. And to my left here, I have Reverend Stephanie Dorwick. She's a Christian, an interfaith minister, a psychotherapist and a very well-published author who's written more than a dozen books, including Choosing Happiness, um, Intimacy and Solitude. And there's a book right here which you'd like to show. Seeking the Sacred, which we'll touch on in just a moment. So let's get started with you, Stephanie. Um, you've had an amazing journey as a writer. Tell us more about your journey with faith. 
Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, and thank you all for coming because it is such a big topic. And I, I think we're supposed to be addressing the separation between religion and, and politics. And of course, there is no separation because the, the way that people think about themselves and conjure up themselves in terms of belief will very, very much affect how they operate in the social sphere that we or could also call political. So when we, I'm, I'm getting to answer your question. So when we think about, um, when we think about the effect of belief on how one intervenes into the political sphere, then we have to look at what those beliefs are. So I would say we have nothing, for example, to fear from your average Quaker. We have nothing to fear from a progressive Catholic. We have nothing to fear from a Jain. We have little or nothing to fear from a Sikh. We have little or nothing to fear from most Buddhists. But we do have something, at least if not to fear, then to pause in the face of whenever religion becomes highly ideological, uh, highly authoritarian, and with that almost inevitably, in fact, I don't know of any exceptions, misogynistic, hierarchical, homophobic and transphobic, and also incredibly neglectful of this vast universe in which we exist. I, I'm still going to come to mm. your question. I trust you. Uh, um, about a year ago, I had an incredible opportunity to interview uh, Dr. Miriam Rose Ungemeyer Bauman, who was uh, Senior Australian of the Year, and I was in the Northern Territory where I live sometimes, and I went to Daly River to see her. And she explained to me so comprehensively and so persuasively, and frankly, I didn't need much persuading, how the, how the First Nations of this country so inevitably and so naturally and so, so encouragingly know themselves to be part of the universe and not separate from it. When I wrote my book, Seeking the Sacred, I wanted to put the proposition forward that if we were to regard all of life as sacred, we would have the transformation that we not only need personally, but also in the way that we identify with ourselves and how we identify other people, not as others, so very different from ourselves, but as others who are also, as the Jesuit Taihad de Shadan said, souls, on a, souls, spiritual beings on a human journey. And this human journey can take so many, many forms. And in my particular case, it took quite an unusual um, passage, which is coincided in an almost miraculous way with changes also in our times that we've lived. Um, so I was born in New Zealand and uh, my parents were intellectual socialists, as many people were in their time. 
My mother died when I was eight, and the year after my father converted to Roman Catholicism. Um, and then my sister and I followed suit, and we became Catholics. And I, I, there is so much that I could criticize about that experience, but it also introduced me to a kind of intensity of response to the mysterious, to the, to the sacred, to the universal, to the unknown, to rituals that take us beyond ourselves. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And funnily enough, in, in recent years, in the last 25 years or so, I have worked a lot with Catholic communities, including uh, orders of nuns, including priests sometimes giving retreats. And I just have responded so, I have received so much from them also in terms of positivity and acceptance of what became for me an interfaith journey. So gradually over the years, I was introduced to the, the major faiths of our world. And in 2005, after several years study, I was ordained as an interfaith minister at the um, Cathedral of, Saint, of John the Divine in New York City. And for many, many years, um, until a year or so ago, I led a very large interfaith congregation. So just very quickly, what does interfaith mean? And I'm going to read you a poem from Rumi, just to give you a sense of flavor that there is something in us, and I suspect that's why you're here at this session rather than at another, there is something in us that yearns for something that we could call the sacred, that yearns for something that, that touches us beyond just the mind, that comes to the heart and perhaps comes to the soul, and where sometimes we can experience ourselves as a soul in the presence of other souls, and where other more superficial identities can fall away. Those are moments to, to be treasured because they fill us up with exactly what we need in order to resurrect a sense of peace and cohesion in our very troubled world. So I'm, I'm just going to read you this marvelous poem from Rumi, the Sufi poet Rumi, who gave us so much uh, in terms of speaking of the universal, uh, speaking of the cohesiveness of our human family that is so hard to hold on to. So Rumi says, define me, shrink me, you starve yourself of self. Keep me nailed in a box of unyielding words, and the box becomes your coffin. I do not know who I am. I live in brilliant astonishment. I am not a Christian. I am not a Jew. I am not a Zoroastrian, even a Muslim. I am not. I don't belong to land or to known or unknown seas. I am not to be claimed by nature or by heaven not by India, China, or Bulgaria. No place is my birthplace. You say that you can see my mouth, ears, eyes, and nose, 
They are not mine. I am the life of life. I am that cat and this stone. I am no one. I have discarded duality like a worn cloth. I see and know all times and universes as one, 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 eternally one. What must I do to get you know who is speaking? Know this and change everything. This, your voice resounding on the walls of God. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. Um, interesting to hear you mention that so many of those parts of religion are harmless or quite benign, but you identify that there are certain behaviours, attitudes, ideologies to be wary of. We're going to get back to that um, in a moment because Elle's story, I think, may um, include some elements of that. I know my own certainly does. Tell us about your book, Beyond Belief, and the amazing journey you've been on and the wild things that you've seen. Sure. So, unfortunately, my story is a bit less profound than Stephanie's. I'm a, I'm a journalist, and I think a lot of people would argue that that means I don't have a soul. Uh, <laughs> but I, I stumbled onto the story of the global Pentecostal movement in Waco, Texas, of all places, in the United States a few years ago. I was there for a story about the John School movement. It, it forms a chapter in my book. And that's, um, it's, it's like if you get done for drink driving, um, but in America, if you, if you get done for soliciting prostitution, um, you have to go to sort of a reform school. And, and I was following around this very Christian group, and they, they didn't want me there. This is, this is in 2018 in, in Red, Texas. This is, I'm fake news media. Um, this is, you know, sort of prime MAGA time. And... I realised after a while the only reason this couple let me into their John school and let me follow them around was because they were fans of Christine Kane, who's very unknown in Australia, but she's a huge figure in the United States. She's a Hillsong alumni. And she's a sort of Gen X, very charismatic uh, speaker about um, anti-human trafficking and anti-human slavery, which is um, anti-sex work movement. And she sells out stadiums in the United States just inspiring women and sort of sells them a type of spiritual Tupperware where you have parties with your girlfriends and you do a bit of a Bible study together, but you really just talk about, you know, being a modern woman and raising your kids and your husband's watching TV and watching the stupid sport, you know, and, and how you're, you're picking your boy up from school and taking him to soccer and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and she's really found a niche in the United States and, and she's really huge. And, and it was through that that I discovered that the global Pentecostal movement is the fastest growing religion in the world. It has about 600 million, convert, uh, 600 million followers and, and growing. By 2050, there'll be about a billion Pentecostals globally. That's one in 10 people. Uh, and about 35,000 people are converting each day. And that's a, just a fantastic story that's really going under the radar. I mean, Pentecostalism in Australia is really only known um, because of Hillsong and, and Scott Morrison. But, but this is the faith that in, in Brazil has, has overturned 500 years of religious orthodoxy in 40. They're, they're converting Catholics like nothing else. Uh, Pentecostalism will soon take over Catholicism in Brazil. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty crazy story and, um, and pretty fascinating. And, and it tells us a lot about our worlds, um, 
a big thing for why people convert. It's, it's the faith of the working poor. It's the faith of people that move to huge cities like Sao Paulo and Lagos and Los Angeles and Sydney, and they get there and they, they feel alienated. They work long hours. They have lost connection to community. And, and these churches, something the Pentecostals do amazingly well, is they have music and, and a real feel-good and uplifting. Their sermons are more like self-help. So they're really giving people the tools that they need to, to navigate modern life. And I think it's something we can probably talk, talk about more, but who else is, who else is giving people this? Um, you know, perhaps 50 years ago, you might have got that in the trade union movement or something, but how many people are members of a union now, unless you work at Coles or something? Uh, you know, there, there just is, there are so few places where people have a sense of community anymore. Really, the closest I can think of is perhaps your football team or something like that. So, so I think there is, there is a lot to understand of why so many people are converting to this faith in particular from all sorts of other Christian denominations. And I think it's a really exciting story. It's, there's a lot to understand. And there is, unfortunately, um, with, certainly with a certain political bent that, that I'm sure a lot of people are probably here to talk about, um, there, there is a lot to be concerned about as well. So the growth here in Australia is a little bit slower. It's still only about a quarter of a million people. Um, so it's been growing steadily but slowly, 1% of Australians. Why do you, what, where's it growing fastest, and why do you think it's not growing as fast here? Uh, I, I think culturally and structurally, there just aren't the... I, I think culturally is probably the big thing. It, it's still seen... Hillsong, the media in Australia was very hostile to Hillsong from the beginning. You know, they've had a current affair and the Daily Telegraph on them and saying, hang on, how come these guys are making so much money from the beginning, whereas you don't get that scrutiny in far more Christian nations like America or Brazil or, or Nigeria. Um, but perhaps I can ask you a little bit about your book if, if, I don't, if you yeah, don't mind. Sure. Um, so it, it's always been a fairly fringe religion in Australia. And, and again, the story is being replicated mm. here with Hillsong in that it's getting people, it's getting new migrants mostly. It, um, if you go to any Hillsong in, in Australia, it's... it's very young people and very diverse. It'd be, you know, probably at least 75% non-white. Um, but that's probably quite different from the church that you grew up in, isn't it? Yeah, right? for sure, yeah. yeah. Um, what I learned through writing my book was that our, our church, which was called the Revival Centres, which was established in Australia in 1958 by a man in Melbourne called, called um, Lloyd Longfield, um, it, it seems to be sort of on the fringe of the fringe. If Pentecostalism is 1%, we were 0.01%. But from inside that world, it felt enormous. We would travel to Adelaide and Melbourne and see thousands of friends that felt like family. So it was this huge world of connection as a child. Um, and then through my sort of journey of understanding how it worked and that um, everyone in our church was expected to speak in tongues whereas in the broader Pentecostal movement, it's almost more like an added bonus to your spiritual life rather than a necessity. And so that meant that our church was actually quite dogmatic and had very much um, an insider-outside delineation that basically tore families apart, um, almost, almost tore my family apart as well. So my book's about the journey inside of that um, and then the journey outside of that. Uh, and as part of that, you know, it was really very much a personal memoir 
but I learned a bit more about the broader movement um, and was fascinated to read your book. And one of the things that really stood out was that this movement you're talking about, which is more so in the last few decades, you know, um, Hillsong started in the 80s, um, and it's the, the neo-Pentecostal movement, or you call it the third wave in the book. And our church thought that you were best to spend your time laying up your treasure in heaven. It wasn't so much about what you could do on your time in earth. That was, that was for basically bringing more people into the fold to come to heaven with us, um, opposed to all the other Christians who wouldn't be going to heaven because they hadn't interpreted the Bible properly. Um, <laughs> Whereas what, what was the, probably the most interesting part for me in your book was that these third-wave Pentecostals or neo-Pentecostals, some of them have what's called a seven-mountain mandate where they are actively trying to change politics, business, education, yeah. arts, yeah. Yeah. culture in this lifetime. They're not laying it up as treasure in heaven. They want to do it now. Opus, Opus Dei also. They're like that as well. That's very much their their agenda. That's the very far right wing of the Catholic Church, Opus Dei. They mm. very much want to have people in political power. So what, do you know much about the Seven Mountain Mandate? No, no, I on? want to hear from yeah. you too on that. Yeah, well, it's the thing across all faiths. It's that people who talk about the good stuff in the next life, it tends to look a lot like power in this life. And the Seven Mountains Mandate is certainly about that. So, so it's an idea that first popped up in the, in the 70s through Lauren Cunningham and, and a few guys that went on to become part of the Reagan administration, did some horrendous things in Central America, and, and also founded um, things like the Council for National Policy, which is we can go into later on as well, which is, which is what has got uh, Roe v. Wade overturned um, in America at the moment. Um, but... And it was this idea that there are seven mountains or spheres in life. So it's, uh, Tom just, just rattled them off before. So it's, it's education, military, business, government, arts, media. And there's always one that I forget. Um, and that it is incumbent on, on Christians uh, to control all of those spheres or, or mountains. And, and this idea really just popped back up in Christian circles in about 2013. Um, there was a book called Inva Invading ba Babylon, taking on the seven taking over the seven mountains. And it's really become a very influential and prominent um, school of thought in the, the radical right of the United States at the moment. So um, the, there's some really emerging evidence now that the majority of people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were inspired by this mandate and people who are preaching this mandate. And this has become very, very strong in the, in the Pentecostal movement. And what it's really saying is it's repackaged Christian dominionism, right? This, these ideas have been around for a long time that America is a Christian nation or that, you know, Christians are born to rule. But what it's really saying is, okay, we've lost the battle. We've lost the democratic battle and we've lost the demographic battle. In the United States, the, the far right is only in power because of, oh, sorry, even the right of, of American politics is only in power because of gerrymandering, because of the, the way of, of structuring the political system is very unfairly weighted. And they know that there's a good chance that might not last forever. So it's just saying to people to screw all that, empower yourself, go out there and do it. So if you feel like storming your local school board, you know, with a gun in one hand and, and going in to burn Harry Potter books, you just go and do that. So, so this book has some very incendiary lines. And, and the guy who co-authored it, Lance Wallnau, is the most 
horrendous spine-curling spine um, preacher uh, on Facebook. And in, in the lockdown, he just garnered this huge following by, by delivering the sort of most rabid political stuff every night. Um, so, so it's directly, yeah, encouraging people just to say that all this might all be lost. Just go and do what you can. There's no such thing as secular employment for the believer. So you go into your workplace and you start telling people that this is what you believe and they've got to convert now and, and that the other people are demonic. And, and the other real thing that they're doing is, is saying that, that your opponents aren't, aren't wrong or they're not, they're not misguided, they haven't misread the Bible. They're demonic. They're satanic. They're marine creatures, and, and it's really bringing just the most incendiary language to people. And, and as we've seen, it's, it's inspiring people directly to do violent acts. So if 25% of Americans are evangelicals, what percentage do you think ascribe to the Seven Mountain Mandate? I mean, look, the thing is that, <laughs> like anything, there are people who aren't really evangelical who are subscribing to this now. So there are, you know, a lot of figures in the GOP who it's just... Another, another means for power, another means to, to raise money or to get people on board or to say that they can do what they do. And because it fits with their, their social values as well? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, just, it's just a route to power. So, it, so it's difficult to say. I mean, um, I think there's something like about an eighth of the, the 25 million evangelicals in America are Pentecostal. Not all of them would, would subscribe to this, and you know, probably half of those are, are, are black um, mostly southern churches who might not, you know, be on board with, with the GOP agenda necessarily. Um, so it's very hard to say, but I, but I think what's probably important to understand is that Pentecostalism is a branch of even, evangelicalism, mm. um, but it's because it's so fast-growing and because so much of the, the weight of the, the moment and, and the movement is really with Pentecostals that they're, they're really having an outsized influence on wider evangelicals. So there might be Southern Baptists signing up to this, even though it's sort of come from Pentecostal schools of thought. Mm. And most of the um, big firebrand preachers now in America are probably Pentecostal, but, but there's a lot of other people picking up on these ideas. So, so I think when I talk about Pentecostalism, it's, it's coming from a certain point of view, but, but a lot of other people are, are really picking up on it. Tom, can I ask yeah. you a question? Um, when I wrote Seeking the Sacred, I in included interviews with some... It, it tells my own story of spiritual development, but I, I interviewed a number of other people also, and one of them is a woman that I know very well who was, in her young years... Her father was a Baptist minister, but in her young adult years, till she was about 30 or so, she was in the Assemblies of God, actually at the same time as the Houston, mm. Frank Houston and so on and so on. But what she told me was not, not about anything to do with the Houstons. What she told me, and it made so much sense to me, was that her conditioning was such that she had to take an opportunity or find an opportunity or make an opportunity to try to bring someone into a realization that Jesus Christ was their savior, or she had failed them. So there was this kind of nervous compulsion that mm. the failure would be hers if she didn't find the, that opportunity. So that, of course, spoke to the kind of exclusiveness of, you know, those people are saved, those are not saved. Mm. You came from a faith or a, 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 a sect, a, a sect mm. where 
you were promised that you would be saved. When you left it, mm. how did you kind of reconcile that with your new identity? I'm really interested to know. Well, it took over 10 years, and it was a... For me, I was very careful, and I needed to understand every element, and I couldn't go straight from being, uh, you know, a real adherent to our, our church's beliefs to um, a raving hedonist. Um, so that took quite a while. But um, and initially, I still wanted to be a Christian, and so I realised the failings of my church, and I went on a, a journey to find a good church. And... That's where I crossed into the broader Pentecostal world. Um, I went to a Pentecostal church once traveling through Costa Rica. Um, I've been to Pentecostal churches in Peckham in South London. And then I went to um, C3, Oxford Falls in Sydney, uh, much closer to Hillsong. And that was strange for me because our church had a fairly extreme belief and a, this very sort of um, tight focus on speaking in tongues, but the, the sort of culture of it was a more 1950s, um, calm, solemn sort of culture, whereas, you know, if you go to C3 or Hillsong, it's basically like you're going to a Coldplay concert, but it's Jesus instead of Chris Martin, um, which was weird for me and kind of beautifully liberating. I still remember the first time I, I put my hands up in the air and I, and I, I was questioning as it was happening, feels like they're moving quite fast. Is God, is God lifting these hands up? And then my next thought was, I hope no one from my old church is here watching me. Uh, anyway, then I went on a journey through several churches and um, I saw some problems with those other Pentecostal churches. Um, one was the focus on money. That didn't sit very well with me. Um, the, um, you know... Prosperity gospel. It was the FPOS machines more so that did, <laughs> did it for me. Um, then I went to a smaller Pentecostal church in Monavale, um, which I, I felt was a little bit more down-to-earth, a bit more community-orientated, but the things that didn't sit well with me there was that it didn't seem to engage with the community around it. It was, it was so internally focused. And if you've read the Bible, it says the greatest of works is charity, and I didn't see any of that. It was yeah. more about prosperity than, for yeah. us, more so than charity for yeah. others. Yeah. Um, so I ended up going to a, an offshoot of the St. Matthew's Anglican Church in Manly, and I thought it was great, and it all made sense. They were totally engaged with their community. There wasn't all this focus on the spiritual experiences, which, if you didn't have them, felt very exclusive, um, which ultimately... I realised that I tried and tried and I asked and asked for this experience of speaking in tongues, but I don't think it ever truly came. Mm -hmm. Then once I'd boiled down to what I thought Christianity really was, I realised I didn't believe in it. Mm -hmm. That it actually didn't stack up. The story of the Bible, mm -hmm. the fact that the story of creation, that we were created with this pre-programmed desire for sin that we would then need to ask for repentance of yeah. from God's Son who... Yeah, then yeah. crucified, I just, I just, yeah. in my heart of hearts, it wasn't me, I yeah. didn't believe it, so that was my journey. Can I read you something about tongues, speaking in tongues, that came, comes from Paul yeah. to the Corinthians? Um, this morning, I was running late, 
and I wanted to find the most glorious 1 Corinthians 13, um, which I, we may or may not have time, which tells us that really we can be the most credentialed person in the world. We can be the most powerful person in the world. We can be the most elegant and admired person in the world, but if we don't have love, it's empty. However, I then discovered in 1 Corinthians 14, this small passage, which I thought was very relevant given the title of Tom's book and the subject matter of your book. Okay, so this is 1 Corinthians 14, which is not nearly as well known as if I speak in the tongues of people and of angels but do not have love, I am nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, so that whole passage is magnificent. We could read it every day and it would be enough. So here in 1 Corinthians 14 it says, pursue love and strive for the spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but to God, for nobody understands them. On the other hand, those who prophesy, which I think means spiritual teaching, speak to other people for their encouragement and consolation. Those who speak in a tongue build up themselves, but those who prophesy build up the community. One who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues. Brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? It is the same way with lifeless instruments that produce sounds such as the flute or the harp. This was Paul writing to the people of Corinth in the, you know, just a few years after uh, the life and death of Jesus. If they do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? If you utter speech that is not intelligible, you will be speaking into the air. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, says Paul. Nevertheless, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to support others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Mm. What do you think? So I know those verses very well, and so that was interpreted in our church to say that um, speaking in the unknown tongue is edifying yourself, praying directly to God, and um, very useful for building up your own faith, but as Paul said, um, when it comes to edifying others, you're better off to be prophesying or, or speaking in the language that the people you are with can understand. Um, yeah, so it's a, it was a very interesting um, thing to unpack for me, walking away and seeing how other churches did it differently. What did you think, you said, uh, when Elle started talking about the Seven Mountain Mandate, you, you said it reminded you of Opus Die. You've been around for a lot more decades than we have. Thank you. <laughs> gentle, and congratulations. Gentle. It's true. What... When, when you hear about that kind of movement, yeah. how many other movements have you heard about that, that have that similar kind of ideology? The very fundamentalist 
end of all faiths, including Hindu, not just the theistic faith. The very fundamentalist end is always authoritarian and power-seeking and seeks to control the bodies and minds and souls of other people, and most especially women. All. And so Opus Dei happens to be, which means the work of God, um, happens to be the extreme end of Catholicism. But we see the extreme end of Islam in, in awful fundamentalism. We see the extreme end of some Protestant or non-Catholic sects in their um, capacity to shun uh, people who don't think as they do. But this movement towards getting secular power, I think, is, is very, very frightening in, a, in our age. And actually, just before um, Dominic Perrottet was um, uh, chosen to be the premier, and it was between him and Rob Stokes, I wrote a, um, a, an opinion piece in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, which got a lot of attention, but rather negative attention, from the um, people who are most in charge at, Sydney, at, at the Sydney Morning Herald, um, pointing out that there are real dangers when people feel compelled to bring a, a narrow ideological view, which they call religious, but it's a narrow ideological view to, to how they will run their politics and what control they think they are entitled to pursue in terms of other people's lives. So the, the dramatic example we're seeing right at this moment is, of course, the, the Catherine Deves awful story where she is a proxy for the uh, misogyny, the homophobia, the transphobia of the Prime Minister, who is apparently running her campaign out of the PMO office, PM's office. I, I, mean, I mean, this is disgraceful. You know, and, and, and to sort of conjure up that Catherine Deves is speaking to support women and girls in sport is so distastefully dishonest. It's distastefully dishonest because it has just become a kind of last bastion of bigotry to attack trans people. I mean, you know, so recently, certainly in my lifetime, you know, it was perfectly acceptable to ex express bigotry against people of color. Then it, it was still acceptable to be bigoted against um, um, all gay people. And now suddenly it's just this group of the most vulnerable people who uh, the prime minister can conjure up those kind of old prejudices and bigotry against. And that's where I see religion coming into politics in a way that none of us should support. All of us should shout against. None of us should be quiet in the face of that. Where religion seeks to harm others, where religion seeks to divide people from other people, where religion seeks to plunder this beautiful earth instead of protecting it, it is not religion. El, how much do you think 
Scott Morrison's uh, Christian beliefs. Um, you know, he's been in the Pentecostal movement in the more recent decades of his life, but grew up in the Uniting Church. How much do you think his, his belief informs those positions on his social issues? It's, it's difficult to say because I, I think he's... I, I try not to judge someone else's the, the sincerity of their faith, um, but I do know, for example, um, as a Cronulla Shark supporter myself, that he was he never actually followed this football team until he he came into the area. So he's I a think guy. he's um, yeah. yeah, and he was he was an East Roosters supporter before that. So so he's someone who's no, he's a rugby, <laughs> he's a rugby union guy. Yeah, yeah, right. but, but he, yeah, he con he converted to, to my him. football team in I think 2011, and and I take I take that personally. <laughs> well, he left my whole code. <laughs> I, I take it more personally. Um, so I, I think he has a history of, um, of perhaps moving to where he feels the centre of gravity is, shall mm. we say. Um, so the, the kind of litmus test that I, I put in, I, I don't particularly see that his views are um, especially Pentecostally or, or Christian, Christianly formed. Um, I, I will say, you know, talking about the Seven Mountain Mandate, it's certainly nothing... Um, that, that we really see a lot of in Australia. It's a very, it's a movement that's very much in the United States. And I'm not trying to say that Hillsong or Scott Morrison is, is, is trying to bring in the Seven Mountains in Australia. I, I, I think it's still a very fringe idea here that, that people get from online. Uh, and I think he's, he's very much, his views are very much a product of the Liberal Party of the last 20 years of, you know, post-Tampa, post-9-11 politics. I, I don't see that he's done or would do anything particularly different in power to, to John Howard or hypothetical Prime Minister Peter Dutton. I, I, I just think that his, his views are, um, are much more, of, yeah, of, of the modern Liberal Party. And, and, you know, sometimes I think because he is um, such an unlikable and probably unusual person, you know, just, just entirely lacking all charisma, I mean, he's how he's a political figure. He, he, the man doesn't like being asked questions and, you know, he's, he's the Prime Minister. I, I, I just don't think he's a good fit for the job and I think that people often do struggle to see, to just see him as, as such an unlikable, unusual figure in that job that they tend to ascribe a lot of things that he's doing to his Pentecostalism because that is quite an alien faith in Australia. But I just don't see it um, informing a lot of his views. But, but, I mean, certainly some of his character traits, um, his bizarre optimism, intense optimism that we saw at things like the bushfires and just kind of, you know, everything's going to be all right and, and what are you worried about? Just, you know, get on with it. That, that is, some of that certainly, I think, comes from the Pentecostal movement, which is which um, probably not the, the movement that you grew up with, but certainly in the modern neo-charismatic Pentecostalism is really marked by an intense, almost alienating optimism. And, and I certainly think, and, and I spoke to Sean Kelly, who wrote the wonderful um, book about a biography of, of Scott Morrison, and he certainly thought that his optimism is probably framed by his, his Pentecostalism, and I would certainly agree with that. Do you agree with Elle that it is, it's more of a, a Liberal Party position that he takes on social issues more so than a faith-inspired position? I see it a little bit differently. I think that He's quite narcissistic. He's very narcissistic, and that the so the, neither of you guys have voted for him this weekend, or <laughs> and that the sense of being one of the elect in his in his relationship to God, one of the chosen people, 
kind of fuels a narcissism that is actually quite dangerous. Mm. That's what I think. So the Religious Freedom um, Bill was a very interesting example because it, it was a promise to provide more freedom to people um, of faith who'd felt marginalised in the same-sex marriage debate, but then when they tried to work in the protections to uh, trans and gay kids, um, particularly in religious schools, it got, it got very messy. And I think that's really symbolic of the struggle to find any agreement on these issues. I think, you know, I know that I would, even as someone who grew up in a hardcore religious environment that was harmful to some people, I am still a big supporter of religious freedom, but I don't want that freedom to encroach on the rights of others. Yeah. And so when you deal with children in religious schools, that's where that debate gets very tricky. So what did you make of the way that that whole situation played out where they couldn't get it past Parliament and the moderates crossed the floor? And I, I thought shambles. the whole thing was completely distasteful and opportunistic and, and really spoke to and encouraged an element, uh, a tendency in Australian society that we really should be long past. And which tendency is that? The tendency towards bigotry and prejudice. You know, I, the, the more that we can accept one another, I mean, I am so encouraged at the possibility that within a week or so, we may be walk, walking, walking towards and working towards not only the federal ICAC, but just as important, more important, an acceptance of the Uluru Statement asking for a voice. Mm. I mean, if we cannot honour our First Nations and the incredible privilege that we have of living among you know, as people say, the oldest living culture, but also the deep spirituality of that, the powerful spirituality that we have yet to draw on. My, my daughter-in-law is, is Indigenous, and, and so through her, as well as through, you know, living a lot of the time in the Northern Territory, I've just come to realise there is so much we could have when we begin mm. to integrate. So all this religious prejudice bill, I, I found it incredibly distasteful because once again, it was a proxy for prejudice. The reason that debate happened was that a lot of Christians felt that during the same-sex marriage debate that they were shouted down by um, the more hardcore marriage equality advocates, um, that anyone who wanted to vote no was branded a, a bigot or a homophobe, which many would argue was pretty unfair. Did you have any sense of that discomfort within the Christian community during that debate or, or that sense of being shut down or ostracised for their, their faith-based views? What I had an incredible sense of was how much pain that whole effort to get marriage equality, how much pain was caused um, to the um, LGBTQI communities. And I will just give you a, a, a separate example that in New Zealand, when the marriage equality bill was passed, long before it was passed here in Australia, both sides of parliament, every parliamentarian stood up and sang the famous waiata, Te Aroha, celebrating love I mean, you know, what are we talking about, really? Mm. Well, a lot of Christians feel like 
they're at war with the progressives and that, that their beliefs are being encroached on. Um, well, nobody's forcing them to become gay. Nobody's forcing them mm. to have a, a you know, same-sex marriage. Nobody is forcing them. All that is being asked for is respect for us all as souls, as members of one human family, respecting one another. That's all. It's pretty simple. What do you make of that, that dynamic and, you know, I guess from... I, the the same-sex marriage survey happened because Tony Abbott was trying to kick the whole debate down the road yeah. as long as he could. Um, and a lot of people felt that that then, as, you, as you've expressed, did unnecessary harm by bringing these two vastly opposed worldviews into this very public clash and now we're dealing with the religious discrimination debate still... Uh, five years after the same-sex marriage plebiscite, it still hasn't been resolved. What do you make of the way that, that played out? Sure. So I guess I would just start by, by saying Stephanie spoke marvellously about, about the horrors of, of, of the real anti-trans hysteria that, that we're seeing at the moment. I mean, where this is most prevalent is um, secular liberal people in the United Kingdom. Um, so, so I guess, you know, we, we shouldn't solely say that bigotry is, is the domain of, of you know, the, the right of the religious. It, it happens anywhere and, and, you know, that unfortunately there are horrible people everywhere you look in the world and, and there are lovely people as well, such as in this room. Um, but, but I think the really interesting thing with the, um, with the um, anti-gay discrimination bill um, in Australia and, and unfortunately like a lot of things we're really seeing this in America as well is that the movement really has, has gone from um, saying that, that we need to, to not be discriminated against because of our faith to that we have the right to discriminate because of our faith mm. and this has been a real legalistic shift um, and, and there's been all the stuff about you know the gay wedding cake in the United States has always been the the idea and and that's really where unfortunately so much of this is done through legal mechanisms now because they've lost they've lost the argument democratically it's it's over um, wherever you look it's over mm. there I think it was was it about 70 percent of Australians voted for gay marriage they've lost and so now it's just by any other means and and unfortunately legalism often tends to be the next recourse so I think it's it's really shifting the idea of that and then um it, it it's well above my pay grade to to sort of talk about constitutional issues and 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 how you kind of stack rights Balance in a row rights, yeah. yeah um but but I suppose I, I think that people need to to be to be aware of that that we, I, I would say probably the majority of this audience, I think we're all f on a fairly similar plane with these ideas and, and democratically, just by, by, by sheer numbers we are. Um, but but the, unfortunately, the, you know, the venue is changing for, for where we're doing these things. And, and I think a, a lot of understanding of, of how to do, of, of you know, where the next battlegrounds are going to be is, is really on something like this. And, and I think, unfortunately, it's, it's really only sort of round one. Mm. Um, can I just say one th thing, because I think we should then have some questions, but if the Christian churches, if any church, any faith group paid as much attention to our capacity for kindness, our capacity for forgiveness, our capacity for joy, as they do to this effort to control other people's bodies and lives, we would live in a different universe.
Thank you, Stephanie. Um, does anyone have any burning questions they'd like to ask? Please. <laughs> Let's talk. Please come down to this microphone. Oh, gosh, we've only got a few minutes. <laughs> Go for it. The world that I grew up in um, many decades ago was one where uh, churches and people of faith um, stood up for matters of great social morality, whether it was the ban, the bomb movement, or, um, or the Vietnam War, um, and a lot of other environmental issues along the way. <clears throat> Even today, um, if you look at the people who are doing a lot of work among the homeless, the people in poverty, a lot of them have a church base mm. or a faith base. Um, I struggle to appreciate uh, the, the Pentecostal dimension where it seems like it's religion without morality. Religion, for me, I, I get the fact that it creates a sense of community and family, but I, I struggle to appreciate what it does for the wider community. And when I look at people like Morrison, who is an avowed member of that, that mm. particular group, and what we've done in this country towards refugees, it, it troubles me morally. Any commentary? Um, that was exactly my observation of the movement as well and my main concern. Um, and then, I, you know, you look at St Vincent's, you look at the Salvation Army, the, um, you know, the list goes on. These incredible institutions do, that do an amazing amount of good work. Now, maybe the excuse from the Pentecostal movement is that it's, it's only been going for 100 years. Maybe that hasn't been long enough to develop any charities. But it, it does seem to be well, they, I mean, a much lacking they, part of yeah. their... They do a lot of incredible charity work, and I suppose I would say that... Do they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Hillsong has, has... And a lot of people join for social justice, you know, because so, they'll have a group that goes out to prisons to do reading mm. and things like that. Um, so recently I was in Arizona, in, in Phoenix, working on a story about um, a sort of Pentecostal exorcisms, and I had to join in and we all had to, to spit into buckets and say our sins and get them out of our bodies and cough and spit. And it was quite quite horrendous um, thing. And, and you're saying all the things you've done wrong while someone's patting you on the back. And, and these are really hardcore groups. And you know, they're telling quite clearly people who probably have schizophrenia and things like that, that the demons are in them and just, just say, just cast them out and you'll be fine. Um, and... and and they call themselves hardcore Christianity. Um, but they were also collecting coats to give to homeless people in their area. Um, so, so there certainly is, there, there is still an ethos of charity. It's just much more about, certainly within Pentecost, modern Pentecostalism, it, it, it's about giving people the things that they need in the here and now as well as the ever after. So that can be used for some very good things, but also can, can be turned to some pretty awful purposes as well. So it, it, it's never com completely binary, I guess I'd say. Um, okay. there, there often is, you know, with, within the most fundamentalist, pretty awful far-right guys are, are still, you know, doing soup kitchens and things like that. Um, and I think that probably the thing that they would say is, yeah, people should be getting charity from their church. But not not government, you know, it should, everyone should join a church and, and get, the, and get their, their, all of their needs fulfilled. Just quickly before we hit the next question, uh, do you think it's anywhere near on the level of the more traditional denominations? Um, yeah, in some cases, it, even in America? more so. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a big Pentecostal um, church like, like Hillsong or 
one of the big American ones, uh, that they tend to be very organized and just by weight of numbers they can do this, that they wouldn't have something that, that you recognize like the salvos mm. or, or, or something like that. But, but they do tend to, be, to okay. be doing this work for sure. All right, thanks for your question. Um, let's go to our, our next one. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, one of the uh, dimensions of Pentecostalism and I guess other Christian faiths that concerns me is this obsession with uh, the end of days, the second coming, uh, the last judgment, all of these things. And I mean, I have a feeling that, uh, that this affects Morrison's blasé attitude to the environment, I mean, which goes beyond, dare I say, uh, you know, conventional Liberal Party uh, positions on things. I mean, we haven't really mentioned the environment today mm. yet, but it seems to me that is it possible that some of these people read the current climate crisis as evidence that the, you know, the end of the world is nigh and that rather than running around and worrying about this, we should all be celebrating because we're about to, the elite well, are about to sort of land up in heaven? That was the, the church I was a part of. That's how we thought. Uh, when I remember um, being at a Christmas camp in 1991, just as the Gulf War was kicking off, and there was, a, there was a sense of excitement that, you know, Jesus might be coming back, and so that New Year's Eve, you know, the, the sort of events that were happening in the news gave the night an extra bit of buzz. Um, what do you think of that point about whether that impacts Scott Morrison's view oh, on climate change? Uh, un unquestionably, but also I did speak a little bit about the, the sense that the universe is here to plunder or to protect. That is absolutely central to the way that we think about the sacred. It's absolutely central to the way that we consider ourselves as spiritual beings. Are we here in this universe to protect it and protect one another, or are we here to plunder? Yeah. All right, thank you for that um, question. Um, let's go to our next one. I wanted to... Uh talk about something a bit more mundane, that is the actual role of the state in, in uh, religious education in primary schools, public education. Uh, I understand uh, things have changed and many schools are offering ethics as an alternative, but the, there still is scripture class and it's usually um, very questionable in my mind because uh, I was horrified to realise that the education department has absolutely no control over what is taught or how it's taught within the scripture class. And so you can get some beautiful talks and beautiful people giving beautiful illustrations. These are for primary school kids. But I remember my own son had the experience of being told in scripture, of course, that uh, nobody would go to heaven who was not a Christian of this particular denomination. And my son, I was so proud of him because his father was Muslim. His, he was brave enough to stand up and say, no, that's not true. If there are good people who are Muslims and good people who are Christians, and if you're good, it didn't matter, you'd go to heaven. And he, <laughs> but that shouldn't, he, that shouldn't have been something imposed. And I don't know what the answer is. If the state is trying to remain secular and pr 
pro, pro, uh, preserve the freedom of religion, not interfere with it, then that kind of laissez-faire attitude to the kind of what is given to primary school kids is very concerning. And I think it still happens in many conservative areas. I don't know what the solution is, if anyone's got any comment, but it's looking at that relationship at the, at the, at the close level between church and state and what's... Well, we don't have a separation of church and state in Australia. That was, yeah, ruled on High Court, the, the dogs case. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure of, of exactly what to do with that, but, but I think we often do mistake the American case of, of having separation of church and state. Um, in a Bill of Rights. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, I, I, to be honest, I think that's above my pay grade. But um, well, it's it, it certainly, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it is something to, to think about. The d yeah, the, the sort of definition of whether it's separation or not is kind of contested in Australia. It's certainly not as, as separated Very as much so. in America. Um, just to quickly address that point, do you have concerns about the way we structure scripture classes have, in public schools? I have schools? a lot of concerns about the chaplaincy movement that is so strong. But we have to wind up. I think, I think our questioner actually made the points marvellously herself. And I want to thank you all for engaging with this because it's just so important that we think creatively together. Um, so I want to thank my fellow panellists and you, Tom, and I want to thank each one of you. Thank you. Big hand for Stephanie, L Baxter, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.